In chapter 3, Paul has just uh, unpacked uh, the significance of the cross and what has been accomplished in the cross uh, by God uh, sending his son uh, to bear our sin uh, so that we may be justified, that we may be brought back into a right relationship with God the Father. He then turns to look at this figure of Abraham because he knows that many of the Jewish people reading or hearing this will be saying, well, hang on, Paul, that can't be right. We, we think that a person is justified by following the law. That's what we as Jews have believed for hundreds, if not thousands of years. That is, it is the law where we find our justification. Paul then says, well, okay, well, let's look at Abraham because Abraham is the father of the Jews. Whatever is true of Abraham must also then be true of his children. So was Abraham justified by works, by what he did, by the law, or was he justified some other way? Is it through faith? So in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 4, we see that yes, Abraham was justified through faith, not works. It was his faith that was counted to him as righteousness, not what he had done. And then in verses 9 to 12, we saw that this justification through faith happened before, not after, he was circumcised. Circumcision was the the mark of whether you were a true Jew or not. It was the sign of whether you were in or whether you were out. So Abraham received justification, being made right with God, while he was still a Gentile, while he was uncircumcised. And then Paul calls all of us, he calls all Jews to walk in the footsteps of their father Abraham. And he calls all those who aren't Jews to also walk in the footsteps of Abraham, knowing that we are justified by grace through faith before anything we can do. So this makes Abraham the father not just of the Jews who can trace their family tree by the flesh back to Abraham, but he's also the father of any person, Jew or Gentile, who shares in the same faith as Abraham. What was the heart of Abraham's faith? The words of Jesus, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. By faith, Abraham peered down the corridor of history uh, 2,000 years into the future and he caught a glimpse of what God would do in Jesus. That God would do something to deal with the sin of the world and it would be entirely God's action, uh, not his own. And that was what enabled him to trust God, to put his faith in God, knowing that he could not make himself right, only God could do it on his behalf. 
So Paul goes on to, uh, to unpack the nature of Abraham's faith. Where does the law fit into this thing? Because it might seem as if Paul is saying, well, therefore the law doesn't count. The law doesn't matter. The law has been a big waste of time. That was the accusation that was uh, listed against him by the Jewish people. We've got to unpack in more detail the role of the law when we get to chapters uh, 6 and 7. But notice in verses 13 and 15 of our reading, Paul makes the point that the law doesn't replace the promise. Abraham lived 430 years before the written law was introduced through Moses. So clearly, Abraham's justification had nothing to do with him following the precepts of the written law. There is a point where uh, God speaks to Isaac and says, uh, walk before me uh, just like your father Abraham did. Uh, Abraham obeyed all my laws and all my commands. So Abraham was someone who walked before God and uh, in, in his actions he actually obeyed the law but he didn't have the written law. He wasn't following a set of rules. He was putting his faith and trust in God and that then flowed out then in the way that he uh, spontaneously lived and acted. So anyone who thinks they can justify themselves by following the rules set down in the written law are actually placing themselves outside the stream of Abraham and his children. Paul says to claim that you can be righteous by following the law is to say that faith is null and the promise is void. The purpose of the law was never to bring about righteousness but instead to expose sin and to show us to be under God's wrath and needing mercy and grace. So far, much of what we've seen about Abraham might seem like theological ideas more concerned with matters of doctrine than matters of practice. But all true theology is intensely practical. It reaches not just into the head but also to the heart. Uh, If God's truth is coming to us in a living way, uh, it cannot but change the way we live. And that's where Paul goes in verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. At the core of the human heart, one of the greatest and deepest needs we have is the need for security, for a guarantee, for something in life that is certain and sure. 
How can we be sure at the core of our being that we are loved and accepted by God? It's the basic need of every human being. If we don't have that need settled, we'll be a restless wanderer. We'll be like a boat without an anchor, tossed along by the waves and blown about by the wind. Our life will be driven by uncertainty and we'll always be wanting to to take measures to try and secure ourselves, to take matters into our own hands so that we can have a sense of a future that is positive and a future that is certain. There was a man called Blaise Pascal who lived in the 1600s. He was a mathematician and a philosopher and later in his life a theologian after he was converted. He belonged to a sect within the Catholic Church, so this is a little while after the, the Reformation. This group within the, the Roman Catholic Church in France was condemned as heretical by the church because they taught many things that were actually very similar to what the reformers had taught, including justification by faith alone. Uh, there's, there's no clear record as to whether these people had actually um, had connection with the Protestants or not, just seemed that they read God's word and the truth of his word broke open to them. Here's something that Blaise Pascal wrote in a work entitled The Misery of Man Without God. This is our true state. This is what makes us incapable of certain knowledge and of absolute ignorance. We sail within a vast sphere, ever drifting in uncertainty, driven from end to end. When we think to attach ourselves to any point and to fasten to it, it wavers and leaves us. And if we follow it, it eludes our grasp and slips past us and vanishes forever. Nothing stays for us. This is our natural condition. And yet most contrary to our inclination, we burn with desire to find solid ground and an ultimate sure foundation whereupon to build a tower reaching to the infinite. But our whole groundwork cracks and the earth opens to abysses. Pascal's there speaking about the, the everyday experience of the everyday person who says, I need security, I need guarantee, I need certainty but everything we grasp to hold on to, everything we try and build, every foundation we lay ourselves, uh, never provides that certainty. Paul is saying the promise of God gives certainty, gives a guarantee. It can't be through what we do or achieve, but rather it comes by grace. Put that up again. The guarantee of the promise 
is found in God's grace, received by faith and guaranteed to all his offspring. We could define grace here as God coming to us with the assurance of his faithfulness and it provides that guarantee that gives us an assurance that he will always do what he has promised. Now, modern philosophers say that the only way we can deal with this uncertainty that we as human beings face is just to embrace it and just to accept that nothing in life is certain. Slip through that again to our next quote. Here's what someone has said recently and uh, this part of this quote is taken from the Oprah website. Uncertainty makes us feel vulnerable so we try to escape it any way we can. Sometimes we even settle for misinformation or bad news over not knowing. Have you ever ended up in an internet rabbit hole of terror while waiting for test results? Yet it really is possible to thrive amid amid uncertainty. It's not about getting advice you can trust. It's about faith and self-trust. Believing that whatever happens, you'll find a way through it. Without uncertainty, we would never start a business or risk loving someone new. There are no guarantees when we step into the unknown, but these periods of discomfort can give rise to life's most important adventures. There's a quote that literally cracked my heart open. It's from a book by Anne Lamont. The opposite of faith is not doubt, it is certainty. That's the gospel, the gospel that our world is, is listening to. That's what the gospel that is being proclaimed on, on Oprah and many other TV shows as people turn on their TVs and think, I want some kind of meaning and certainty. Um, and it's, it's a bit ironic, isn't it, that she says, we can thrive in uncertainty and just knowing that nothing is certain But Brene Brown, who said this, presents us with what she sees still as a certainty, self-trust, believing that whatever happens, you will find a way through it. So what, what is she saying? She's saying, just accept that there's nothing uncertain, but actually there is something that you can believe is certain, and that's yourself. Trust in yourself faith in yourself. So she's, ironically she's acknowledging that in order to embrace uncertainty we still need at least one thing that is certain and she would say it's ourselves. Now it's true that the opposite of faith is not doubt. But it's not true that the opposite of faith is certainty. I think I said that rightly. 
The opposite of faith is not doubt. That's right. Those who have faith will still experience times of doubt. But it's not true that the opposite of faith is certainty. Look at verses 20 and 21 of our reading. Which we've already been looking at. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Did Abraham have a sense of certainty that sprung from his faith? Well, he did. He was fully convinced about something. Not about himself, but in the one who had made the promise. Doubt is a symptom of not having faith. If Abraham had unbelief, that would have produced doubt or wavering. But the opposite of faith is unbelief, not certainty. The opposite of faith is a a deliberate, a, a willing decision to not trust in our faithful God. But instead, true faith produces certainty. By faith, Abraham gave glory to God because he was fully convinced. He had a guarantee. Having this certainty about the Father's love for us in the Son will then enable us to go on and to face and to deal with all the uncertainties in everyday life. Things about which we can never be certain until they actually come to pass. Will I get that job? Will I keep my job? Will my children and grandchildren grow up to be happy and successful? Will I be safe on the road? Will I have a long life or will I die young? Will I get lots of fruit from my garden? No matter what the uncertainties are in life, whether they're big or whether they're small, all of them can be held up in perspective against the one great certainty that we have in Jesus Christ. The promises of God are guaranteed to me, to you, by grace. And God calls you to simply receive that by faith, to trust him. Now if you know something about the story of Abraham and Sarah, you know that both of them laughed when they heard the promise of a son. Genesis 17. And God said to Abraham, For Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? 
Well, there's Abraham. What about Sarah? They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. There are three main theories about why we laugh, what it, what it is that triggers that response of laughter in a human being. One theory is called the superiority theory. And as I go through these, you can maybe do a test of yourself to see uh, what kind of sense of humour do I have and is it a good sense of humour or maybe a bad sense of humour. The superiority theory says we laugh when we feel a, a sense of triumph or sudden glory, normally involving laughing at someone who appears weak or foolish in our eyes. Slapstick comedy or um, one of my favourite comedies is Mr Bean who's just a foolish person and he makes me laugh. We laugh because we want to affirm our own feelings of self-worth and so we enjoy seeing someone who appears weaker or more foolish than ourselves. That's the superiority theory. The release theory says we laugh to release our nervous energy when we feel uncomfortable. It may be when someone makes a joke about a taboo or an inappropriate subject, a dirty joke, and we laugh because of the nervousness or the uncomfortableness of that. Or maybe, and maybe you've experienced this, I know it's happened to me a few times, when we're faced with news that is too shocking to cope with, sometimes we laugh because of the, the nervousness, the uncomfortableness that we feel. There's a, a third theory about laughter which I think seems to line up with what it means to be people who live by faith. It's called the incongruity theory. And it says that we laugh when we face a pleasant psychological shift. When faced with something that doesn't quite fit with how we think this world is supposed to operate. This is childlike laughter. When mum or dad make a funny face and a child laughs. When they play peekaboo and a child laughs. 
It's laughter that happens when our idea of what is normal is suddenly overturned and we discover that there's a way of seeing things that we just hadn't considered before. I think that's the kind of laughter that is the laughter of faith. I think that's the kind of laughter that Abraham and Sarah experienced. Historically, Abraham and Sarah laughing, especially Sarah, I don't know why Sarah always gets the bad rap, because both of them laugh. It's historically been seen as a failing, as a lack of faith on their part. But notice that the Lord doesn't rebuke Abraham when he laughs. And I don't think he's rebuking Sarah when he asks, why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? If anything, it was Sarah who misinterpreted her laughter and thought, maybe my laughing is a lack of faith. I better deny that I'd laugh. And the New Testament writers certainly don't see their laughter as a lack of faith. What are we told? No distrust or unbelief made him, Abraham, waver concerning the promises of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Abraham laughing wasn't a lack of faith. It was an expression of his faith. Hebrews 11 By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Was her laughter a lack of faith? No, it was actually a laughter of faith. In their laughter, we see the essence of faith, the essence of joy. Joy is a state of the heart that is able to produce true laughter. It sees that there is truly, there is nothing too hard for the Lord and has a deep assurance of this while living in a world that seems to be saying the complete opposite. Everything about Abraham and Sarah's situation screamed to them that there was no future for them and no future for their family because they didn't have a family. But then the promise of God broke into their predicament and made claims that seemed too good to be true. That is, if we just think that this world is what should be normal. God's promises say, no, what you know in this world is not the normal. I'm always doing something new. I'm always breaking into your perception of what is normal and ordinary with my promises. See what Abraham and Sarah had in common? There's Abraham. And there's Sarah. Both of them considered God, who had made the promise, to be faithful. God is able to do what he promises. This is real faith. Not trying really hard to believe something about which there's no evidence, which is what faith means in the popular imagination. 
but looking at the one single most important thing, the faithfulness of God. The faith that says I'm going to work really hard within myself to believe that this is true. That's a faith in myself. That's a, a trust in myself. True faith says I'm going to look outside of myself, beyond myself, not even going to consider myself. I'm going to look at the faithfulness of the God who has made the promise. And faith isn't, it's not a blind faith. It's not believing in something for which there is no evidence. God has given us in his faithfulness all the evidence that we need to trust him. Verse 24, verse 23. The words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. There is nothing more that the Father needs to do to provide evidence of his faithfulness to us because he has done it in Jesus Christ, in his death for our sins and for his resurrection for our justification. And so we, we can walk in the footsteps of our father Abraham. We can share in his faith. Abraham looked forward 2,000 years to something he saw only dim and distantly in the future that one day God will do something that will make everything right and will make me right with him. And he trusted in that. We now look back 2,000 years to something that is crystal clear, that is not vague and shadowy. And if Abraham was enabled to put his faith in that thing that was unclear yet to him, how much more are we able to look back to this clear evidence of God's faithfulness to us in Jesus and his death and resurrection? This Jesus who died for our sins and was raised for our justification. Let's pray.